Hello and welcome to Kids Sports. I'm your host, Eddie Hawkswood. I have a very special guest today. I'll bring him in in a moment. Kids Sports is part of the Blue Lake Drive podcast network. Please click on it and you can find a whole bunch of different content that you, the parents, need to navigate all of the tricky waters that life with children in this modern age presents to you. So without further ado, let me bring in a very special guest, a man I've known for a very long time. If you're a baseball fan, you've probably seen his work. He's a former major leaguer. Most importantly to this show, he is a parent. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joe Siddle to the show. Joe, how are you doing? Hey, Andy. How are you doing? Everything's well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I hope you're uh, having a good day so far. So, Joe, as I uh, mentioned, this is a show by parents, for parents, and uh, you, you, you fit so many, you tick so many boxes with all of your experience. The very first thing I'm going to ask you is, as you were playing sports growing up, what was the best piece of advice you got from either a parent or a coach during a difficult time in your major league or in your minor league career? It was probably to have fun, Eddie, to be honest with you. And um, it's certainly something I used as a parent and as a coach over the years. And that's why I think that little term there probably stuck with me more than anything. And it was probably, I think it was probably back in peewee baseball at Central Park in South Windsor where I grew up <laughs> and you're playing on the all-star teams after house league was done. And, you know, baseball's a, a game of failure, and uh, that's that's just a fact, and that's why I think it's very difficult for young kids taking it up as six- and seven- and eight-year-olds when they first start. It is hard to put the bat to the ball. It is hard to throw a ball accurately across the infield. So there are so many difficult tasks in the game of baseball that as young kids, what do we all teach our kids or try to promote? It's, it's confidence. It's self-esteem. Well, how do you do that when they're continually failing? So I remember that and certainly had my struggles, I'm sure, as a 10 and 12-year-old. But uh, remember a coach promoting that, have, have fun. And it's not easy to have fun when you're failing. So it was, it was almost that balance that you had to try to strike. So you, you arrive at the ballpark and try to make it a good day. And when things don't go your way, you continue to try to make it a good day, whether it's picking up your teammate or therefore, if you're not having a good day, maybe your teammate picks you up by quick pat on the back or pat on the shoulder. And those are the sorts of things that to this day, I continue to kind of talk about because it's so critical, especially in the game of baseball because of the amount of failure. Oh, absolutely right. And you brought up something that wasn't on my radar, but I think it's, it's very important. You and I both played baseball. Uh, obviously you played it much better than I did, but you, you said we would have our house league season. And then if you were invited to the tryouts and you were good enough, you made the all-star team, and then you subsequently would go on to play the district, play the, uh, you know, if you're lucky enough, the provincials, Canadians, whatever it was. What do you prefer, the way that we had it growing up or where you choose the rep team really early in the year and just get to work as a club? I preferred the way I did it as a dad and as a coach, and that's when you have the rep team all year long. And the reason I say that is because house league is the most wonderful thing so that all kids can participate. And we all know that some are going to be more skilled than others. That's the fact in every walk of life. And that's why House League is wonderful because every kid in the neighborhood gets to play the game of baseball that they hopefully end up loving. But at the same time, I felt as a, as a dad and a coach that you could hold kids back a little bit if you have the kids that are more highly skilled playing House League with for two months with kids that aren't 
overly skilled, but they're doing it because they just want to play baseball right. in a participation factor. And then it's so much to the point, I remember, that you might get your shortstop who's got those great arms as a 10-year-old, and he fires the ball over to first base, and you get somebody at first base that maybe isn't too adept at catching the ball. So it endangers even a factor in safety. So I like the fact, though, that you have – We'll say I don't like using these terms higher skilled players, but the higher skilled players for the full four or five month season, because I think that's what's best for skill development. And over the years, that's what's going to help them become better because they're constantly being challenged by players somewhat equal to their caliber. I don't think you can develop skills near as much if you're a higher caliber, <clears throat> excuse me, type player and you're playing against kids that aren't quite as talented. So participation is a fantastic thing for the house league, but I think for skill development and in any sport, you're always going to be get better when you're challenged more. And you just mentioned participation and it isn't just the kids playing. Oftentimes, as you know, uh, coaches at the, the league level are parents, mothers and fathers who volunteer to be on the coaching staff. Now, if I was on your coaching staff, I would just say whatever Joe says, whatever Joe says, whatever <laughs> Joe says. Obviously, no, not everyone is going to have your knowledge and experience. To parents who want to get involved in coaching, and this, this can be applicable to baseball or soccer, swimming, whatever it may be, but they themselves do not have much experience in the sport or experience as a coach. What advice would you give them so they can sort of get up to speed quickly and be an effective and, and solid uh, coach in a, a short period of time? Well, I have found that even when I was coming through as a coach, uh, coaching my own kids, that there are a lot of certification programs now across the province that, that help, especially for parents that are being introduced to a sport, because let's face it, most of our youth coaches are parents. It's pretty hard. I mean, I loved when I could get some of the teams in our organization to be coached by non-parents, maybe right. people that used to play the game and they, they maybe they played in college even and they've come back and they haven't begun their work life just yet. Or maybe they have, but they haven't begun a family or anything yet. So they do have time to coach a 12-year-old's team. That's great. That's a best case scenario, but it's just not that realistic because not too many people are available in those situations. So we usually have to rely on parents to help out. So the Best thing you can do is provide them with the resources to try to gain some knowledge, even an introductory level coaching. Now, the downside of that, of course, is that some parents on some teams will not object, but not think too highly that their kids are not being coached very well. And my answer was always, join us, because it's not easy when you have it. It'd be like me going to coach a hockey team, Eddie, and I did, and I helped coach some hockey teams with my kids growing up. Not my number one thing by any means, but you help out because they need bodies. They might just need somebody to shoot pucks, and that's what I do. So you always need help in that regard, but it's just um, it's a delicate, delicate issue because that's what I always objected to is that parents that were critical of volunteer coaches that are simply volunteering because we needed bodies. And uh, so that's why I think the best thing to do is arm them with the best knowledge and maybe certification-type programs that, that there are available. Well, if you're getting criticized, then I feel better about when I was getting criticized because that just goes to show there are some parents who will. Uh, anyway, we'll move on. Okay, I read about you and your brother when you're uh, pitching and catching growing up. <laughs> you'd pitch one game, you'd pitch the other, 
you'd catch for each other. And, you know, those two games on the tournament, uh, those would be the, the two Siddle boys going. Now we have pitch counts. You know, you get capped at 45 pitches if you want to throw the next day or 70 was what uh, it was not too long ago for 11-year-old boys um, and girls. Uh, what are your feelings on pitch counts at uh, the youth level? Very good idea. <laughs> Very good idea because I think the – uh, the science has shown, too, that the, the one number one risk of leading to arm injuries is more workload and overuse. And we all know, especially when you get to the competitive levels of rep teams, that you're right, you get to a tournament and you're, you throw your best pitcher on Friday night. Friday and night. he goes, yeah. if, if this is before pitch counts, he might throw 85 pitches as a 12-year-old. And then you, you bring him back on Saturday because you need a, a big inning pitch to get out of the third game. And then he's going to start your championship game on Sunday. So that's where that all comes from. And it's because youth coaches want to win. And that's unfortunately where it's coming. I understand it in, in rep ball that that it is. Of course, you're trying to win. It's, it's not about necessarily participation ribbons, but you, you want to win. And the question is, at what cost? And that's why I think pitch counts came to be. And it's a great idea because it does protect these children from overuse type injuries. And uh, I've always had a, a thing with young kids throwing curveballs, too. I remember going to a lot of tournaments. Uh, probably our kids were probably like 11, 12, mosquito, peewee. And you get to tournaments and these 11 and 12-year-olds are just snapping off curveballs. And, of course, they work because not, 11, not many 11 and 12-year-olds are going to be, hit, be able to hit a breaking ball they have enough trouble with a straight one. And uh, so they work. So the kids, the coaches encourage it and the kids throw it more. Now, I, I, I still think overuse is the number one risk factor to, to arm injuries in kids. But snapping off curveballs at a young age uh, can't be too good either. And I, I know I've, I brought it up with some opposing coaches back then. And some of them say, well, no, we teach it properly. That's <laughs> like, well, you may teach it properly, but to <laughs> 11 or 12-year-old to throw a curveball properly that doesn't hurt your arm, I say, you know more about science than I do in anatomy, so I'm not even going to go there. But those are two things why pitch counts are very important. Uh, the curveball thing is another one that I'd love someday for it to be implemented, but I know it's a difficult one to monitor. But pitch counts, they're fairly easy to monitor, and yeah, it does. And the other thing it does, too, is it promotes – coaches using more players and yes. use rather than having four or five or six pitchers on your team for the weekend maybe you have to use seven or eight or nine and that allows those extra three or four players to pitch more as a young kid especially if you're talking like the 10 12 13 year range so i think it, it's going to it's best for skill development for the whole group but more important than anything is is the safety of these young kids and watching their arms definitely 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 uh <laughs> Your, your insights on baseball are amazing. For anyone listening, Joe uh, is, is the father to both males and females. And I wanted to ask you this. You're, you're a wonderful volunteer uh, in, in your community. Uh, I've known your family for decades. Is there any difference in your approach to coaching sons versus daughters? No. When I coached, I coached athletes. Good. That's the that's the way I looked at it all the time, whether it was my daughter's softball team or my son's baseball team. They were athletes and they were treated as athletes and boys didn't do anything this way and girls that way. It was this is how we throw. This is how we catch. This is how we swing. This is how we look for a pitch in the zone and everything else to do with baseball. It was sport. And that's the way I always treated it. And it's funny you ask that question, Ed, because 
I made it a point. Like I had to, I, I went out of my way to make sure I spoke like that around them. It wasn't about the girls and it wasn't about the boys. It was the players, the team, the athletes. And so much so that I hope the young boys that I coached caught on to that. I made sure they did. And also the young girls that I coached caught on to that so that the boys didn't feel like, oh, we're boys playing baseball. And the girls didn't feel like we're girls playing the sport. It wasn't that at all. Yeah, they were the, they were my, the players and the team. And this is how we did things. So uh, very interesting question you asked. And I uh, certainly hope more and more young coaches are doing it the same way. I loved coaching both. Now, many girls play baseball too. I just happened to be involved with, uh, in, in at my home in Windsor with the Windsor Lady Expos where my daughters played softball with the Windsor Lady Expos. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I would have never thought I would, that would be like my thing or that I'd be interested in that. Of course, watching your kids play anything is awesome. Right. But when I started coaching it too, it was fantastic because it was, it was like taking the game of baseball that I felt that I, I know so well and you just condense it on a smaller field and everything's quicker. Everything's faster. The third baseman's in. There are a lot of bunting right and moving. It, yes. It's a scintillating game. I just, I absolutely love to coach my daughters in that aspect. Softball is possible. Really fun. Yeah. A friend of mine in preparation for our, our conversation today, he said, yeah, same thing. It was like when you have a picture and you put a new filter over top of it and you just see it something that you thought you knew in a, in a yeah. whole new light. And, uh, and that's good. Uh, I, I put that, uh, question on a T for you because I knew you'd give the sort of answer that our listeners needed to hear. So thank you for that, Joe. Uh, you mentioned Central Park where you played, where I played uh, growing up. Additionally, Central Park had a pool. A lot of kids oh, yes. took swimming lessons there. And you Not played. Me. Did you learn how to swim? No, we played home run derby there. Is that where you're going? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you played football and baseball growing up. Uh, and uh, in the summertime, there we had a lot of uh, players who play baseball, but they still had swimming lessons as well. Can you please explain to to listeners how important it is to not not specialize in just one sport? And the value of we used to call it cross training. The value of of a diversified athletic portfolio, please. I think it's for the physical and mental health of any young kid. I think uh, I, I have to stop when you mentioned the swimming pool at Central Park. It's like, yeah, I didn't take swimming lessons there, but we, we played home run derby. If you hit it into the tennis courts, it was a home run. <laughs> there were a lot of tennis players that chased us away from the park those days. <laughs> but yeah, no, the, the, the benefit, I think, first and foremost, when I think of playing different sports, it's just because that's what I did when I was young. It's like, you know, I played baseball in the summer, then um, hockey and basketball and the, all the grade school sports, swimming in the summer. But I think physically it's great because you're using different body parts. You're using different uh, mobilities, the agilities and the things that you do on a basketball court. It can help you when you play volleyball and then while, while you're swimming, you're building up strength that can help with your baseball swing. I mean, it just goes on and on. When you mentioned cross training, it's probably for me the best way to explain it because Everything you do in one sport can help you with the other. But more importantly than anything, I would have to say it's the mental aspect for young kids because I never really remember as a kid feeling like overburdened or like when is the season going to end? I never felt that way because kind of played your season, you finished it. And when, when baseball finished, you, know, you pulled the hockey skates out and then hockey was finished. And then as I got into a little bit later in high school, it's a little bit more difficult by that age because now you've got seasons that you've got to kind of 
part compartmentalized a little bit. So football in the fall, when it ended, literally the next day I was in the gym playing, trying out for the basketball team. And literally when that ended in March or end of March, I was outside and uh, trying out for the baseball team. So as you get a little bit older, you can't quite do as much. But for those young kids before high school, I encourage all those grade school sports and summer sports to do it all. Because the other thing is when you, when you do a lot of different sports and you play on a lot of different teams, you have a lot of different friends. And yes. the social component is, is huge. It's fantastic for, for young kids to, to have friends from all different backgrounds and not just, hey, these are the people I play baseball with, and then we all go play basketball. And so it's a wide variety that way. And then probably even more important is the fact that you get coached by so many different people. And there's so many different coaching methods out there and, and personalities that I think help, and even into my professional career, and I talk to major league baseball players right now, and they talk about their high school coach or their college coach. And, you know, I, when I was coaching young kids, I related it to real life, Eddie. Like, you might not always like your boss, but you know what? You got to go to work every day. And you might not like your baseball coach this summer, but you have to go there and make it work. And so I think it's learning different coaching styles, which could be your boss at work one day. And, and as I said, that sport is a great avenue of great vehicle to prepare for life. And I've, I've always kind of used that with young kids. And it's really fun now. Of course, I'm getting a little bit older already. So a lot of these young kids that I coach, they're in their 20s now. And they're starting the real world jobs. And they're, they're, they still reach out to me and we communicate a little bit. And that, that's the best part. But you kind of hear some of that feedback. Oh, coach, that's what you always told us. Oh, coach, you always told us that. So those things are fun to hear. But yeah, so you've got the physical aspect of playing a variety of sports that I think is highly beneficial to kids, but also the mental aspect. When these former athletes reach out to you now, do you find yourself still talking to them in the same voice that you had them, you know, that you, you talked to them when they were 12, 13, 14, or are you adjusting the conversation now that, as you say, uh, real world, real problems are upon them? Yeah, we, we, I do. I adjust the way I talk to them, but they still call me coach. And I think it's hilarious. <laughs> these 22 and 24 year old kids say, hey, coach, did you see this the other night? I was like, you can call me Joe now. No. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, it's really cute. And I think in my job now, too, on, on Blue Jay Central, we'll do demos sometimes on our stage and it might be a hitting demo. And I've had kids text me, some of my former players, they're like, Coach, that's exactly what you told us when we were like 10 years old. So, yeah, it's, it, it is very cool to be able to stay in contact and see some of them and, and watch them grow as young men now. When you were in the Montreal Expos organization, your manager, as you mentioned, was Philippe Alou. And he had boys in, in the big leagues. Uh, he's a very, Alou is a very well-respected man, and obviously you're, you're fond of him. When you, when, when you saw him interacting with others, was he always... Uh, you know, the, the perception of managers back then was, you know, they're a bit hard-assed, but uh, he, he seems more uh, empathetic as a man. Um, and, and did you see that he was both a good manager and a good father figure as well? Yeah, you would not have even known that uh, Felipe was Moise's dad when we were playing with the Expos. That's how he kept them so separate. But I think, too, it does have a lot to do with it. You just mentioned his personality was that way. Now, Let's not forget, Felipe had a pretty fiery side, too, that uh, broke out every <laughs> once in a while. Don't get him angry because 
he'll let you know. But yeah, it was great. I think, um, and Moises was such a good player too. Obviously, it's not that he got to the major leagues on the uh, because of his father. He did it on his own merit and had a nice career. But yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Definitely an interesting dynamic to to have a father son combination in the big leagues like that. But I think it was a combination of the way Felipe handled it, and it was probably as a result of the personality and the man that he was that worked so well. Now, we started by talking about having fun. That's the most important thing. And, and you veered towards uh, the pitch count being created because there are minor league uh, managers, youth managers that want to win. But the, the ship should always be sailing towards that goal of having fun while playing something that you love. What do you say or what advice could you give to parents whose children have said, are, are coming to them and saying, I don't, I don't want to play anymore. I want to quit soccer. I want to quit volleyball. I want to quit the baseball team. You know, do you just say, fine, if you want to quit, you're out. Or do you have a few conversations? I'm sure you've come across situations like this in the past. And uh, when parents see their kids, especially on travel teams, who can be successful or are maybe just going through a a, a transition period in their life or a, a tough time in the season, what, what advice would you give to those parents who are confronted with the reality that maybe their son or daughter want to give up the sport? Well, first and foremost, I think um, if you're in the middle of a season, my, my suggestion is always to finish what you started. I always feel right. like we want to teach our kids that you signed up for something and we're going to finish it. Uh, because again, once, once again, it's life lesson. You don't want them walking away from things when they're not done yet. But I think it's very important for parents to listen to kids too, because we don't always know what's going on in their little heads. And if they're not having as much fun playing hockey as we think they are, or as much fun as we are as parents watching them, we have to get our priorities straight and remember that it's their life, not ours. So I've, I've had talks with parents that have come to me like after a baseball season coaching and, and not that it should matter, but sometimes it could be a pretty good player, like a skilled player. And the only reason I say that is because for the kids that aren't as skilled, you can see them maybe wanting to choose another interest, but a kid that uh, is pretty highly skilled and soccer to me for a parent to come up and say, Hey, you know, he's thinking of not playing next year. And I would ask a lot of questions and, and if they wanted, I would even talk to the child, but, by no means why I encourage him saying, oh, no, you need to stick with this. Like, you're really good at this. You need to – he hate to go there because we don't know what's in their little heads. Maybe there are experiences out there that they don't really like at all, whether it's when they're in the outfield or up to bat or the, you know, the anxieties of being a hitter in baseball. I mean, we don't know how difficult it is to hit in baseball. And then you're standing up in that batter's box and people are yelling from behind the backstop to keep your elbow up and do this and do that. So maybe there are experiences there that we didn't even know they had that they just don't like that environment and they want to maybe choose something else. Now, I would encourage them if they were to go another avenue and not play, that's totally fine. But you certainly want them to have some interest. You want to make sure that if they're not going to play baseball next summer – what are you going to do? Because, you know, we want to keep kids busy, right? We want to keep right. them active. And the best way to do that is to actually be involved in a program, a, a structured program, as opposed to just say, well, I'm going to go play basketball a couple of days a week. So those are the things I always thought about and, and encourage parents and then encourage even kids sometimes when they approach me about that topic. Okay. So the follow-up question there is, if two-thirds of the way through a season – a kid expresses uh, the, the fact that they want to say quit a team. Should you, as the parent, tell the coach right away, 
or save it to the end of the season because a lot of parents will probably think to themselves, if I go tell the coach, he won't pitch him or he'll move him down in the batting order or he'll sit him a little bit more. And parents want to know, do you all get on board together and try and work this out and salvage the last third or do you keep, uh, do you keep it private and confidential? And when you explained it that way, Eddie, I'm just listening to you. And right away, the first thing that came to my mind is you would hope that there's an open line of communication between right. the parent and coach that you can talk about that. And that was one thing I always encouraged uh, when I was coaching young teams. I'd have parent meetings at the beginning of the year. And, and that's the most important thing is to communicate. And I don't want to make it sound like, hey, this is all perfect and this is how you do it. Because we know there are a lot of forks in the road as a, as a parent of a kid in sports or as a, as a coach. But try to encourage that communication. It would be wonderful if, if we had that relationship where any parent could come up and approach the coach and say, hey, you know, Sarah or Jimmy, they're just, they're not having a lot of fun. They're really, they only want to come to the ballpark today and, and have that open line of communication so that the coach is aware of it. And then sometimes as a coach, you can go out of your way to make sure that you're keeping an eye on that and maybe encouraging that child a little bit more, trying to you know, go out of your way to maybe make it more fun that night at practice or something to help kind of kickstart and maybe get that child back to where we hope he or she will be. So communication's a, a wonderful thing. Uh, I'm sure it's not perfect all the time between parents and coaches because there's friction there, whether it's about playing time or who knows. There are so many issues, as we all know, but try, try, try to create that at the very beginning and, and try as hard as you can to maintain it throughout the course of the season. Oh, that's, that's fantastic advice. Uh, I, I'm very glad that uh, you touched on that because I found that secrecy doesn't uh, lead to any answers or solutions. Okay, I have a couple. Uh, do you have time for a couple uh, emailed in questions from uh, our listeners? Sure. Uh, the first one comes from uh, Stevie K. He says, uh, Joe, if you had a Hall of Fame vote, would you vote in uh, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Roger Clemens? Uh, good question. I have teetered on this, but where I am right now is that I would. And the reason I would is because I still see the Hall of Fame for the greatest players that ever played. But I also see it as a museum. And it's a museum where you don't have to be a good person or a bad person or whatever the case may be, but you're one of the best players to play the game. Now, some tested positive for steroids. Some were just alleged to have used steroids. But the problem with, with not letting these people in is we could probably agree now that there are people in the Hall of Fame that use steroids or other performance-enhancing drugs. So I like, to, I like to look at it that in that regard because – if any of those people were put into the Hall of Fame, whether they put an asterisk next to them or not, I think most people would would know or there should almost be that it was an era. To me, it was an era in baseball, especially the steroid era was an era. We had racism in sports or baseball. We had wars where players missed. I mean, we talk about Ted Williams missing several years because he had to go to the war. We talk about Jackie Robinson not getting into the major leagues because he finally broke the color barrier. So to me, those are all parts of of the history of the game. And unfortunately, performance enhancing drugs are part of the history of the game. So I would include them and put an asterisk there if you wish, or uh, just almost, I think it should almost be in the Hall of Fame as an, as an era when that, that whole performance enhancing drug 
thing went down. That is, I, I never looked at it that way. And as soon as you brought that up, uh, telling a story, my mind went to much like a museum and there are uh, pieces of art created um, via war, things that uh, tell stories of our, our human experience that aren't some of the finer periods of our uh, existence. And um, you know what? Learn from it, grow from it. Don't make the same mistakes. I like that perspective, Joe. Another caller, uh, Vic, had the question, what was it like? And in preparation for our meeting today, that's a Tiger Stadium panoramic photograph. That's Michigan in trouble, absolutely. Yes, uh, once <laughs> renowned for the best grass in the major leagues and the best ballpark, Franks. Uh, you hit your only major league home run there. Tell us what it was like, please. Oh, man. One and only. I wasn't a home run hitter. I wasn't known for my bat at all. I was a defensive-minded player, and I was actually facing a former teammate, Jeff Facero. He was a left-handed pitcher with the Seattle Mariners, and we played together in Montreal. So I'm sure I think more about him, about the home run I hit, because I'm sure he's thinking, are you kidding me? I just gave up a home run to this guy. He can't hit water if he fell out of a boat. And it was um, – it was a, it was, I think it was a doubleheader, game one of the doubleheader, and I think we were down a few runs, so it just got us back in it. Uh, I think it was 3-1 in the middle of the game, middle of six, but I mean, I'm battling against a good left-handed pitcher, and uh, you put a swing on a ball, and I, I think I knew I hit it good, but I, like I said, I wasn't a home run hitter. I'm not one of those guys that right when you hit it, you know it's gone, and believe it or not, Eddie, it, it hit the facade of the upper deck in Tiger Stadium and came back on the field. And as I noted, we we're playing the Seattle Mariners. Well, the Mariners center fielder threw the ball back up into the bleachers to the fans. Well, the Mariners center fielder's name was Ken Griffey Jr. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> the Tigers personnel, our staff, went up there into the upper deck to try to get the ball back because it was my first career home run. They'll often do that to save the ball. Right. And the person wouldn't give it up because Ken Griffey Jr. threw it to them. So that was going to be difficult. What I ended up hearing the next day or two days later is I did get the baseball Apparently, they had to contact Griffey Jr., and he signed a bat and a ball or something for them and, and made the trade. But I never, to this day, I have not seen Ken Griffey Jr. to thank him for that because I have that baseball in my home. <laughs> That's really cool. I mean, there's, first of all, not, no one else is hitting the, uh, the home run that's listening. Uh, but to do it and then have uh, Griffey Jr. as part of the story is, is obviously incredible uh i would be remiss if i didn't uh, ask you before uh, we wrapped up today there's a certain uh, fella helping out this installment of the blue jays dante bichette he's working with Bo, yes. and he's in the dugout so talking about parenting uh have you had any good conversations or good stories so far from uh, mr bichette or anything that you've uh, witnessed well, if we remember way back in March when spring training took place before this global pandemic, uh, it was baseball as usual at right. the end of February, early March. And I remember I was on the field one day in Dunedin, Florida, where the Blue Jays train. And Dante was there as a guest instructor. And I played against Dante in his career. He was with the Rockies. I was with the Montreal Expos. And we were just sitting during batting practice when he's standing along the, the railing along the first baseline in front of the dugout. And we we're just talking baseball. They're going through some drills. And he was very insightful, uh, very insightful. Just um, he was talking about his role and how he's there as a guest instructor, just trying to provide some good insight to players, uh, a little bit about a two-strike approach. This was a team that chased a lot of bad pitches last year. They didn't walk much. They struck out too much. So he's trying to change that over and just trying to help kids almost more with the mental approach to hitting as opposed to the physical swing. 
things to look for, what to do with two strikes, about maybe shortening up your swing and, and trying to avoid strikeouts because if you put the ball in play, there's a chance for something good to happen as opposed to a strikeout. It's just an empty out. Nothing good can happen. Runners don't advance. And it was a long conversation more about that kind of stuff. And it was fascinating because what it has now, when, you, when I look back to that day I was speaking with him, what it's blossomed into now is, oh, yeah, he's a full-blown hitting coach with the Blue Jays now. They brought him on the staff because they loved what he had to offer. And more importantly, the Blue Jays offense has really prospered under his tutelage and under a lot of the guidelines that he's been talking about. And you look at some of the players like Teoscar Hernandez, who's really broken out. Rowdy Telez has been really good. Grichik was on a tremendous tear early on before scuffling a bit lately. And up and down the lineup, you're seeing more and more. But more importantly than anything, what you're seeing is a team that is not chasing bad pitches quite as much. It's a team that's taking a few more walks. And when you swing at better pitches, you're going to be better hitters. And that's one thing he reduced. His other focus was two strike hitting because – he felt, and his son, Bo, is the poster boy for two-strike hitting. hitting right? He's a very aggressive hitter, especially early in the count. But when he gets to two strikes, he has a drastic change mechanically and really tries to shorten up to, to put things in play as opposed to doing more damage earlier in the count. But he's gotten other players to kind of buy into that whole approach. And Dante, first, he just simply broke down the numbers. You just look at the numbers, batting averages, with two strikes. They're terrible. So in other words, you don't want to get to two strikes. So what's the moral of that story is try to do damage early in the count. So it's okay to swing early in the count if you're swinging at good pitches. So he's trying to get these guys to look for a pitch early. It doesn't have to be a fastball. You might sit on a breaking ball, watch what that guy's been doing, that pitcher's been doing to previous hitters. So there's just a whole other level of what he's brought besides the, the analytical approach that Guillermo, Guillermo Martinez, their hitting coach, brings to them. This is just a whole other aspect, and it's, it's really hitting off now. You know, this is too short of a season to say hitters are completely changed, like a Teoscar, like a Rowdy, some of these guys, but it's been very intriguing to watch. The approaches look very different, and they're much better. And as of the time when we're producing this, only the Dodgers and Blue Jays are major league clubs with at least six or more players with 20 or more RBIs on their club. And as Sparky Anderson used to say, the RBI is the most important offensive statistic. So uh, it is good to see that uh, paternal effect on, on uh, right now, the best baseball team in New York. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, before I let you go, any other uh, advice you'd pass along to parents any other words of wisdom that will uh, help kids navigate their, their kids' sporting life? Well, I think, you know, based on a lot of things we've talked about, Eddie, the one thing that everyone has to understand is it's not that easy. Like, I, I can tell you how I, what my approach was with coaching kids and what my approach was as a parent, but it, I know it's not easy. Those are the things that, through my experiences, helped the most. It doesn't mean they're always going to help. Their suggestions. Um, and the last thing I want to do is come across as this is how you do it because we know as parents when we first have kids, there's no guidebook. And as a coach, you know, people try, but there's no real guidebook because you're always literally throwing curveballs, right? Things can happen throughout. So, but I go back to my, uh, my have fun thing because if we can keep that in perspective and not worry about winning the World Series when they're 12, 
<laughs> and uh, some of the some of the most fun I had as a coach was when I was coaching against friends or people that I had. You know, we were in Windsor, and I had some buddies up in Toronto, maybe guys I used to play with, and they were coaching kids, and we were kind of on the same page about what we're trying to do with our young athletes. And that's what made it fun as opposed to sometimes, and I'm, don't get me wrong, I, I, I wanted to win and we wanted to win more than anything, but we thought we did it the right way because it's, you're trying to put the kids first and you're trying to think of what's best for them. Um, a perfect example is maybe instead of going to a tournament and driving four hours and having parents stay in a hotel for two or three nights and it's three games guaranteed, rather, you know, that's not a lot of playing time. We started sometimes, we'd have a team come to Windsor, we'd come up to Toronto, we'd play a doubleheader Friday, doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday, and then drive home. It's one night in a hotel, played four games, got all kinds of playing time for all the kids. So those sorts of things, be creative, be creative and, and try to do, again, the bottom line is what's best for the kids, more innings to pitch, more at-bats for everybody, those sorts of things. So be creative, but more importantly, if you can keep their development as your number one priority, that helps a ton. Joe Siddle, uh, his Twitter handle is at Siddle Joe. He does a fantastic job on all Blue Jays broadcasts. He and Jamie Campbell have a fantastic dynamic. Uh, we can't wait uh, to, to see what the future brings, and we really appreciate uh, your time this morning on uh, the Kids Sports Podcast, Joe. My pleasure, and I hope it all helps. And maybe uh, maybe some suggestions help some parents and kids out there. Thanks. Certainly, you have a fantastic family. Enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks again. Take care, Eddie. See ya. Bye-bye.